Lord John. So if you'll open there with me, we'll be reading the whole book, which is one chapter. Uh, opening the third John. You'll notice there are a lot of similarities between 2nd John and 3rd John, uh, especially in the introduction. This time he's writing to Gaius, whom he loves in the truth. In 2nd John it was to the elect lady and her children, whom he loves in the truth. Here he says he rejoices greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you're walking in the truth. And in Second John, he said he rejoiced greatly to find that some of the children were walking in the truth, just as they were commanded by the Father. So in both cases, he's writing to faithful believers to encourage them, and he's writing about the same matters, but very different perspectives and problems, as we'll see in a minute. To one, he warns them not to help the false prophets and the heretical teachers, or they would share in their rewards. And now, in 3 John, he's writing to encourage them to help the true brothers and faithful teachers sent out by the church, no matter the cost, so that they will share in the rewards. Uh, Slightly different perspective, but the same matters and same issue. So let us read 3 John together, and then we will consider the text. The elder... To the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do, in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church, you'll do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of the Lord. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we are to support people like these, that we may have fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he was do- what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense about us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and also stops those who wants to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write you, but I would rather not write you with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be with you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you again with a short letter. There's some hard things written, 
We pray, Lord, that through it you would give us wisdom to understand the life of the church and the life of the believer and how we should be working and supporting you and your kingdom and your people and living our lives. And we pray for wisdom and insight as we consider these things. In Jesus' name, amen. So then this letter is primarily about supporting faithful workers, working together with the faithful. These people have gone out to do the important work of the kingdom. Before we look at verses 5 and 6, I want to jump right into verse 7. They've gone out for the sake of the name, it says. That is, for the sake of Jesus Christ. They're in his official work, presumably in the ordained service. We see an example of this ordination in the scriptures with, with Paul. When Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch, there were many prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so after fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Acts 13, 1 through 3. The laying on of hands is a practice we still follow today for ordaining official office bearers in the church. And ultimately, it goes back to the Aaronic priesthood. We're told in Exodus 28, you shall put the clothes on Aaron and the brother and his son, your brother and his sons, God is telling Moses, and you shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. Exodus 28:41. And so this ordination, the setting apart to the service of God in a formal service. So these people were probably those who had been set apart formally to the service of God. And that would make them then people who were in in the right place or in the right capacity that they would be recognized as God's servants. They're not simply the poor. They're not simply people on holiday. They're not traveling about for their own purposes, but they're traveling on on the Lord's business and the Lord's service. Maybe itinerant preachers, teachers, perhaps bringing the message of the apostles to the churches that don't have it. Many of the churches, even in that day, probably did not have fully equipped ministers. You know, today all of us have more than one Bible at home. Uh, Some of us have too many Bibles. I think when I went to Cambodia, I left half a dozen here. When I left Cambodia, I left half a dozen there. And I still probably have half a dozen here. Uh, They didn't have that. Every copy, every scroll was handwritten. Some of the books of the Bible were on multiple scrolls. Not everybody had them all. And even every church might not have them all. It was a time of persecution and a time of difficulty. And they might not have all of them. And even if they had them all, they might not have elders and teachers who had a full education. They might not all be educated to the, the seminary level. We had that problem here in America. In the early years, they had itinerant preachers. Uh, I remember a story, I think it was Jonathan Edwards. 
His wife would pin his itinerary to his suit. He would climb on his donkey with his books, and he would be riding along with his books open, working on his sermons on his donkey, riding through the countryside. And when people found him, they would help him direct his donkey the right way to make sure he didn't get lost. And he would go from village to village and preach and teach. Because there weren't enough people who were trained. And even in this day, they might have elders in the church who took care of it, but they wouldn't necessarily be fully capable, and they would welcome then the teacher who would come to visit. And it would be a great blessing, of course, to have one of the apostles visit, or one of those trained, fully trained by the apostle. And when the disciple is fully trained, he becomes like his teacher, has the skills And of course, at this point, probably around 100 A.D., we're getting close to it. It could be the second or the third generation already. But there would be those who were well-trained at the feet of the apostles and those trained by the apostles who would be able to come out and help. And there would also be church planters and missionaries and church workers traveling about. And that's probably what's at mind here. They would be brothers, and they may well be strangers. You might have never met them before. And there were faithful things that they were supposed to be doing, and they were doing, it says. The faithful things you do. Now, this idea here that's lost in translation, and it's part of it's cultural, <coughs> and part of it has to do with the word, The word strangers in this verse carries with it an idea of hospitality that's lost to us. Um, They couldn't get on Expedia and book a hotel. In fact, they didn't really have hotels like we have them today. Some commentators actually suggest in that day the hotels were more like brothels, and they weren't a place that you wanted to stay. And normally, if you were traveling, you wanted to have contacts friends or friends of friends that you would go stay with. And the church especially was careful, and Christians would then meet with the church and stay with somebody in the church because you didn't want to stay in the local hotel, if there was one, the inn. You wanted to stay with somebody. And we see that also in the Old Testament times where they would go to the square and they would be put up with somebody. And we we know how that worked out in Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, You had to be careful. And so there's an idea there that's carried in that this was the practice. These preachers, teachers, missionaries, as they were moving from place to place, whether they were heading off to a far land or whether they were coming to town to do their ministry, the church would help them out and put them up and probably feed them and care for them. They had the right connections. And we kind of see that here, right? Your your efforts for these people in verse 5. Send them on their journey, verse 6. They were accepting nothing from the Gentiles, verse 7. We ought to support people like these, verse 8. The idea is certainly carried in the passage that what John is talking about is 
these people are coming into town, you take care of them and send them on their way properly so that their ministry is able to be fulfilled. In all likelihood, what we're talking about here is what Peter talks about. Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality. The word here has agape, love, and stranger crammed together. Stranger love, hospitality, to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varying grace. Some had the gift of teaching and preaching and were ordained to those offices. Others had gifts of business. Others had gifts of hospitality. Each used those to serve God and to serve the church and to serve God's people. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. The end belong glory and dominion forever and ever. First Peter 4, 7 through 11. What Peter is saying is you may not be the preacher, you may not be the teacher, but you may be able to do your part in sending them along their way as John is talking about here. And so these people were welcoming these traveling faithful church workers. They cared for them, they refreshed them, they sent them on their way. Or if they had some business or teaching to impart, they were helping them and receiving it with joy. And so in doing so, they were becoming partakers of their work. Partakers by sending them in their work. Remember the horrifying warning we had last week. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive them into your house or give them any greeting. Whoever even greets him takes part in his wicked works. Become partakers of his work. This week we have kind of the opposite encouragement. Verse 8, we ought therefore to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. In helping these people, we become fellow workers. And we talked about a passage last week, and I want to read it again. Jesus says, whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet receives a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. Whoever gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to him, you will by no means lose your reward. Matthew 10, 40 to 42. It's all talking about the same thing. You, know, you don't have to be the teacher, the preacher, the pastor, the missionary, the evangelist to receive that reward when you're helping them accomplish their mission, their purpose. You're getting part of their reward because that's the calling God has given you. Paul says, Are all apostles? Are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, 
Do all possess gifts of hearing, healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Rhetorical question in Greek. The question is asked in such a way that the answer is expected no. And we can see that. Not everybody's an apostle. Not everybody is a prophet. Uh, by the way, do all speak in tongues? The answer expected is no. So the cults who say you're not a Christian if you haven't spoken in tongues, you know, we point them to this text and say clearly that's not required. You're often left field somewhere. But he says, earnestly desire the greater gifts. I'll show you the more excellent way. What is the more excellent way? Well, that was 1 Corinthians 12, the end of the chapter. What's the next chapter after 1 Corinthians 12? 1 Corinthians 13. And how does 1 Corinthians 13 start? If I speak in tongues of men and angels and have not love... I am a noisy gong or a clamoring cymbal. The next chapter is love, the more excellent way. How is love shown in today's passage? Well, by aiding the, the apostles, the prophets, the teachers, the miracle workers, the healers, by aiding the servants of God, by aiding the faithful, godly people, even though they're strangers. And what's their reward but a share of the reward? Of course, as we keep saying, that works both ways. If you're helping the godly, you get a share of the godly reward. If you're helping those who are against God, his enemies, you get a share of their reward, which is punishment. You lose your reward, as we saw last week. It seems self-evident, right? So why is John saying all of this? Ah, if only the church could be more pure, right? There are those who reject faithful workers, often because they want to be first. John says, I have written something to the church. Now, we don't know what the writing is. Was it a writing from John himself? Was it a writing from like the Presbytery, the, the group of churches in the area? Was it a formal writing? Was it a personal letter? It's obviously not part of Scripture because we don't have it preserved. Um, what was the content? Was it introducing people? Was it asking for his cooperation? Was it telling him to stop interfering and start cooperating? We don't know exactly what's going on, but we know what the result was. He rejected it and became hard-hearted and refused, and we're given the reason why. Because he likes to put himself first. Now, we saw this with the Jews. Jesus often reprimanded them for that. He said they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad, their fringes long. They love the places of honor at feasts, the best seats in the synagogue. They actually had in the synagogue, they had seats up here facing the congregation, and they were for the important people. Why were they sitting there not looking at the speaker? Because the speaker was irrelevant. They wanted to be seen by the congregation so that the congregation would know these are the important people. 
They want the best seats. They want the greetings in the marketplace. They want to be called rabbi by others. He said, you are not to be called rabbi, teacher, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. Call no man father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructor, for you have one instructor in Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Matthew 23, 5 through 12. The Jews were very proud and very much about their station and their self-importance. We also see this in Greek and Roman society, particularly amongst their teachers. Greek and Roman philosophers were basically graded on how many followers they had. And they spoke eloquently, and their goal was to gather many, many followers to themselves. And they would often have debates for the sole purpose of winning the followers of other philosophers. And when they lost their, philosopher, their followers, some of the philosophers would actually go so far as to kill themselves because they had lost their, their meaning for existence. That battle went on throughout their history. Unfortunately, we also see that in coming into the Christian church, and it comes in periodically throughout all of history, and we tend to call that movement scholasticism, where you mix Greek and Roman philosophy with Christianity, and whenever you do that, it inevitably comes back to the best man is the one who can win the most followers. And you see that a little bit when you have the I follow Paul, no, I follow Apollos, no, I follow, and Paul is shaking his head going, no, 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 no. It wasn't the person they were following who was at fault in that case because they were all godly men. It was the foolish men who were bringing over their Greek and Roman philosophical tendencies, wanting to have a great instructor and follow the best. But it also, at times, becomes the leader. The leaders puff themselves up. And that's what was happening here. For the Christians, though, Jesus is even more explicit than he was in condemning the Jews. He says, you know that those who are considered to be rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever will be great among you must be your servant. Whoever will be first among you must be a slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10, 42-45. It says of Diotrephes, he likes to put himself first and does not acknowledge authority. Jesus is saying, if you want to be the leader of the church, you must be the servant of all, the slave. Now, what kind of authority do we have? Remember, authority in the Christian church is not clearly stated, but we have one example of it in Acts chapter 15, where there was a conflict that rose over Do the Gentiles need to follow the ceremonial law of the Jews to be saved? 
Paul was saying, absolutely not. The Judaizers were saying, oh, they can't be saved unless they follow the ceremonial law. And a conflict arose, so they assembled the elders of the area. They got the elders together, and all the elders in the region went up to Jerusalem, and they had a council trying to keep the peace, because there was certainly no peace. The decision of the council was, no, you don't need to keep the ceremonial law, but because there are many Jews, the temple is still there, there's a big conflict, you know, do the things that mean keeping the peace, but it's not a requirement for salvation. In Acts chapter 16, as Paul went around the whole region, he went back around all the churches he'd been to on his second missionary journey there. As he made his way through the cities, it says, they delivered to them for their observance, the word there means to keep the decisions, for their observance, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. Acts 16. So they were expecting them to obey what was decided at at the council in Jerusalem. There was authority there. Now, in the church after that point, the Roman Catholic Church started to exercise absolute authority. Whatever they decided was law. And they didn't compare it with Scripture, and you couldn't compare it with Scripture. It overrode Scripture. And that became a huge problem until finally... You know, we know what happened, right? You've got it being a capital crime to read the Bible <laughs> if you're a Christian. You know, unbelief. The Reformation happens. After the Reformation, you have some people who want to follow that hierarchical system where you have pastors and above them you have bishops and the bishops have authority over the pastors and the pastors basically have no say. And over the bishops you have another level and another level. Uh, that was generally rejected. You have the congregational system, where the congregation, every person has a vote, and they make all the decisions. Some said, well, that's not good, because the congregation often has no Bible understanding, and they make bad decisions. So they had a board, the board of elders or the board of deacons, and they make all the decisions. And sometimes that didn't work out. The pastor tended to have more knowledge. So in other groups, the pastor made all the decisions. Well, that didn't always work out. Presbyterianism, we have a session. The pastor is the moderator of the session. The elders make the decisions. Uh, above them, all the pastors and representatives of every church are on the presbytery. The presbytery has oversight over the churches. Over the presbytery, we have a synod. If the denomination is big enough, over the synod, we have a general assembly. And there's checks and balances to help keep things from getting out of hand. Because even if it's a local congregation, sometimes they fall into trouble and somebody further away may not be in the same trouble they're in and may be able to see the problem and help solve the problem. And so we find that wise, harder to abuse. But of course, men are men. And in the 1930s, the local congregations that were sound were in the minority, and the congregations further away in the majority started to become more and more apostate until they started to persecute the believing congregations. And on the other hand, you get congregations that run off into the muck, and the pastor stands up and denounces the believing 
presbytery who wants to exercise oversight says, like this fellow Demetrius, or uh, not Demetrius, he's the good guy, uh, <clears throat> say to, uh, what was the fellow's name? The Atrophies. No, the bad guy. Diatrophies. That, yeah, two Ds, so I confused the names. Diatrophies saying, you know, you don't tell me. I'm in the right. All of you are wrong. And, you know, it doesn't always work out. But I think the Presbyterian model is, of course, at least has the checks and the balances and can help to keep things in the right. And I think it's more biblical as we look through the Bible. But that's another you know, six-week Bible study, <laughs> and we won't be doing that today. Uh, so what authority is he speaking in here? It's not real clear. Is it as an apostle, as a leader? Was it the presbytery speaking? We don't know, but certainly because he says this in its scripture, we can expect that there certainly was authority being despised and rejected by this man. And that was the first part of the misconduct. And he despises their authority. Indeed, he makes, it, makes me think of Jude that we went through last fall or last summer. And Jude says, in a like manner, these people rely on their dreams, defiling the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. General rule, false teachers and sinners accept only themselves as authority. They don't accept any authority over themselves. Usually that's because if they accept authority over themselves, that authority is going to call out their sin. And they don't want anybody being able to say, you're sinning in what you're doing. And therefore they won't accept any authority. And that's apparently the problem here, because this man is sinning, as we'll see when we go through the other misconduct. Jesus, when he talks, gives a parable about himself, makes it a little clearer. When they heard all the things that Jesus was doing and seeing, he told them a parable because he was coming near Jerusalem, and they were supposing that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So he says, a nobleman went to a far country to receive a kingdom for himself in return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business till I come. But his citizens hated him. And they sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. Luke 19, 11 through 14. And that was pretty much how the Jews felt. They did not want God to reign over them. And that is how sinful man is. They do not want the authority of God over them. Because God will call them on their sin. They do not like the light because there's, the light will expose their sin and their deeds are evil. John 3.16 and following. What well, was the second misconduct? Talking wicked nonsense. <coughs> Sinners, particularly in the church, use trash talk as one of their most important tools of statecraft. Fault finding and talking evil about others. Uh, we see that a lot 
you know, somebody becomes a popular author. What happens? Pastors start to get nervous. Oh, my people are following John MacArthur and they're criticizing some of my teaching because I'm not as good as MacArthur or Sproul or, you know, pick the person, personality. And so they start to find fault with them and they start to speak evil about them. And they start to then criticize and even put people out of the church who read their books. It happens. Why? Well, they want to be first and they don't like to be second or third. And they don't like to be compared. And they don't like to be found inferior. And it, you know, it, it's an ugly cycle starts to happen. Peter tells us we should put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. First Peter 2.1 But that seems to be where Diotrephes is. Envy, he wants to be first. Hypocrisy, wanting to be better than John the Apostle, wanting to criticize John. Slander, malice, deceit, all seems to be there if he's talking wicked nonsense against the Apostle. This path leads to great danger. Understand in the last days there will come difficult times, Paul says. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning but never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth, 2 Timothy 3, 1-7. Perhaps he's not there, not at the end there yet, but we can see in that list a number of problems that this man is already having and already on that road, that road to ruin. Proud, abusive, mistreating his own people, uh, mistreating his, the people of God, mistreating the apostle, mistreating the, his church, mistreating God's people in other places, refusing the fellowship of believers. Now, sometimes this is necessary, that people are not godly servants of God. And we saw that in Second John. You don't want to even speak to or welcome or greet the false teachers. So you're not going to fellowship with them. Uh, Sometimes we need some discernment, particularly if the source is not certain. We're told, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. 1 John 4.1 Talked about that already. John himself in his first epistle, has warned us not to just openly receive everybody, but to test the spirits. So there are times, yes, when we have to be careful. There are times when we refuse to fellowship. But we're talking about people who are, in this particular context, accredited as being godly and holy people who are doing the work of God, and yet (coughs) being rejected and being rejected because this man wants to be first and he doesn't want to be threatened by them.
doesn't want his his kingdom, his empire threatened. And that's what leads to the disfellowship that we see mentioned in this passage. It's an extreme punishment. And it's used of those who teach the false gospel. It's used for unrepentant sinners. This man is using it to keep his personal kingdom secure. But not anyone who doesn't follow him exclusively. Anyone who doesn't obey him exclusively is the king. But a kingdom can't have two kings. Remember, Jesus says you cannot have two masters. You'll hate one and love the other. Be devoted to one and serve the other. He, he uses that specifically about serving God and money, but it's a generality that would work for everything. And I think it works here. The church cannot have two kings, two lords. The pastor cannot be the Lord, and the Lord cannot be the Lord. Which is why if the pastor is the servant, the servant of God, but also the servant of the congregation, when he makes himself the Lord of the congregation and expects the congregation to serve him as this man did, it's going to fall apart. It's going to self-destruct. And if he doesn't want them listening to or following or hearing other men, then it's going to self-destruct quickly. And Diotrephes was certainly not acting as an elder or pastor should. Uh, remember Peter's exhortation of an, the, the elder. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as partakers in the glory to be revealed. Shepherd the flock among you, exercising oversight, not, of, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those under your charge, but as examples to the flock. Now, this man was definitely domineering. And then when the chief shepherd appears, he will receive the unfading crown of glory, First Peter 5, 1 through 4. This man was definitely domineering. And we need to be working out our differences in brotherly love and humility. He had ultimately made himself a rival king to Christ. And so he moves on, John moves on to say, don't imitate the evil, but the good. The evil was exposed in verses 9 and 10. The good extolled in verses 5 through 8. John has been teaching this throughout particularly the letter of 1 John, that this principle, whoever does good is from God, whoever does evil is not seen God, is one of the main themes through 1 John that we covered. Those who serve God must love God. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God also must love his brother. First John 4, 20 and 21. It goes beyond this, even though by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. First John 3, 10. By not loving and supporting our brothers, especially those in God's service, we show ourselves not to be loving God himself. Just as we do not love God's enemies last week, we're loving what God hates. We need to love what God loves 
would love those who God has loved. We should love those made in God's image, especially those who have been transformed more and more into that image, and especially those who are serving God in that capacity, and even though they're strangers to us. Now, John raises up Demetrius as a particular case of somebody worthy of being received and being helped on his way. Notice, he's been around. Those who have experienced his ministry and his, his, uh, his labors have testified positively about them, meaning he's been tested and approved already. He says the truth itself testifies about him. What does that mean? Well, I think it's a reference to his doctrine. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15. John says the word is truth. So he has, I think here, he has been tested, meaning he's a servant who has shown himself to understand the teachings properly. And the, the apostle himself also testifies that Demetrius is approved and worthy. And what better than these three witnesses can you get? The churches have seen his work and approved. He's been tested according to scripture and approved. The apostle himself is approved. You know, uh, beyond that, unless God himself should bear supernatural witness, it would be hard to get a better testimony for him. And so... John is saying, support, help this man who's coming, who's apparently coming to them or is with them already, or maybe even bearing the letter to them. So these are tough times for the church that men are already starting to break off and say, you know, we're not going to support the apostles, the apostolic church. We're not going to receive their teachers. We're not going to receive their authority essentially setting up their own denomination, perhaps denomination of one in this case. But we see that happen as men grow proud, men grow arrogant, men want to defend their church of one. I've met men over the years who say, this is my church. We should say, this is Christ's church. Nothing gets the hackles on the back of my neck up and makes a cold shudder go down my spine than when men start to play the my ministry, my church, my mission. It's sad. We should pray for them and pray for that. It's hard sometimes because the admonition in Second John is so strong. You share in their wicked work if you help the wicked. But... Remember what Jesus said. You know, when did we not help you, you know, see you hungry and thirsty, Lord, and not help you? Well, when you didn't help one of mine. The admonition in Third John is equally strong. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we know, Lord, it is hard to test the spirits and know who is right and who is wrong and who we should help and whom we should not. Pray that you would give us the wisdom to know and the love and the joy to help your people, 
to rejoice in those holy and righteous teachers, to rejoice in authors that are good, in pastors and Bible teachers and uh, sermons that we can hear and books that we can read and encourage others in them so that your kingdom may grow and your people may grow closer to you and may become more holy through them and that we might mutually support each other. And we pray, Lord, that we would be careful not to foolishly support the wicked and incur your wrath, but support you and your kingdom. So we pray for wisdom and grace in that. Bless your church to be diligent in honoring you and in pointing out good people and good ministries to work with and to support. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.